Hello, Stitchers. Welcome to Stitch Please, the official podcast of Black Women Stitch, the sewing group where Black Lives Matter. I'm your host, Lisa Woolfork. I'm a fourth-generation sewing enthusiast with more than 20 years of sewing experience. I am looking forward to today's conversation. So sit back, relax, and get ready to get your stitch together. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Stitch Please podcast. I am your host, Lisa Woolfork, and I am delighted to introduce you to the inimitable Kianga Janaki. Kianga is a fiber artist, a storyteller, a doll maker, a community organizer, a community art person extraordinaire. This is someone who builds and creates community, who teaches in person and online, who is just really involved and has a really soft spot in my heart because she is living in Riviera Beach, which is a community very close to West Palm Beach where I grew up. And my grandmother lived in Riviera Beach and wow. my cousin still lived there. And I have a lot of family in Riviera Beach. So Riviera Beach feels like home, right? And so I went to high school there. I mean, like all of it, all of it is just a really big deal. And so it's really nice to welcome you and feel like I'm talking to somebody from home. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you for being here for that. Kianga, I want to just, again, welcome you and ask you, how did you get started? What are some of your earliest or earliest fond memories of sewing, fiber arts, needle arts? How did this become your thing? All right. First of all, thank you so much for considering me for your show. Like I binge on Stitch Please (laughs) in my studio, (laughs) you know, so thank you. Thank you. I actually got started as a child. My mother insisted that I learn how to sew. Now, this is interesting because she didn't sew. Oh, my grandmother didn't sew. Oh, but she was like insistent that I learn how to sew. And I did not embrace it at first. I was like, mommy, please, why? (laughs) But I, you know, she bought me a sewing machine. And I remember the first outfit that I made for myself. I made a denim skirt with a matching vest to go see the Pointer Sisters. Wow. And I made my junior prom dress gown. But after that, I was like, you know, I was into writing. I was writing poetry and I wrote plays and stuff as a child. And I liked theater, you know, but sewing didn't seem like it for me. Anyway, grew up, got married, and we moved to Atlanta. And the house that we moved into had a sewing machine in it. What? It was a sewing the, the person who had lived in the house before left the sewing machine. And I was like, all right, okay, I'm a sew. Okay, okay. You buy a house, you move into the house, the house is empty everywhere else, but there's a sewing machine there. Like there's a sewing machine there. Either that's just like a message from the universe, or Absolutely. like somebody forgot something that was important to them and they're like, Where's my sewing machine? Oh, really? that's in the back of the old house. Like it was there. It was there. So I again, like you say, I took that as a message, like, all right, so I'm gonna be sewing. You know, and so I started making out clothing, and that was mostly what it was. Then we moved from Atlanta to West Palm Beach. My husband at the time was an editorial writer and started working for the Palm Beach Post. So we moved here. That's how I got to Florida. Oh, But as a child, I mean, I grew up in Baltimore. I'm born and raised Baltimore. All my dreams started in East Baltimore, as as Reginald Lewis would say. 
That's the truth for me too. And so then when we moved here, you know, I continued with the sewing. My daughter was born in Atlanta before we moved away. So when she turned about five years old or six years old, she asked me to make a doll that looked like her. Now, at the time, I had locks like all the way down my back. Wow. I dressed in full regalia all the time. I was always head wrapped, garb, you know, head to toe, Africa when you see me, you know, you know, and my daughter, she begged me for locks and she was getting ready to start kindergarten. I said, you say, I'm not sure you want locks. She said, yes, mommy, I want to look like you. I want to look like you. I want to look like you. I love it. So at that time, when she asked me to make the doll, you know, I just being a good mom, I went to Joanne's, got him a calls pattern for a doll, and I made the doll. And the process of making that doll, I can't even tell you what a magical feeling it was. Huh. You know, I mean, it was a magical feeling as I was making the doll. And when I finished making the doll, and in all honesty, she still has that doll. I will not let her show that doll in public because it was not, you know, it was okay. It was your first doll. It's not what, right. It's not what you see me doing now, you know? So I made the doll, you know, I made a little African dress from an old dress that I had or whatever. She loved it. And it sparked something in me. And I remember mentioning to one of my friends that, you know, I think I'm going to start making dolls. She said, what? You're going to be making black dolls? I have a black doll collection. I want one. Oh my gosh. Okay, well, I guess I'm making dolls. You know, so I made that doll. And then, you know, somebody saw that doll and then somebody, you know, so it became my life's work just in and there. And that was like the early 90s. And that was really at the height of the black doll circuit. Mm-hmm. All of those black dolls, like Laverne Hall out of uh, Seattle, Washington. Mm-hmm. She had holiday festival of black dolls and it was wow. a touring doll show, okay. show and sale. And so she did a show in Ohio. I think she did one in Houston. I know she did one in Seattle. Wow. She had a doll magazine called Dolly Graham. I wow. started writing for Dolly Graham and I was a vendor at some of the doll shows. I remember the one in Ohio where she, our guest, our keynote performer were the Croatians. These oh, brothers, wow. are you familiar with them? No, I'm not. Girl, these brothers from out of New York that made these puppets that were crows that were life-size that they put on top of their heads and they did the temptation song. Oh my gosh. I mean, all of that happened, but be, even before that, I got Croatians. so oh like the temptations, like the crows. Yeah, the Croatians. I'm thinking, girl, I'm thinking you're saying Croatia, like the city in Europe. No, Croatians. the Croatians. Like black Croatians? I'm confused. Yes. All right, okay, I got you now. But Even before that, I think in 91, I learned about the Dark Images Black Doll Show and Sale Convention in Philadelphia. You know, like before that time, I'm thinking I'm in my little house making my little dolls. And it's probably like maybe five other people all across the country making little, you know, black dolls. Yes. But when I went to the convention, there was two or three ballrooms. I know it was more than 300 doll makers. Wow. Black doll makers. Wow. I mean, as far as the eye can see, cloth dolls, porcelain dolls, pecan clay dolls. Oh my goodness. Just all these different kinds of dolls. And I met all these amazing doll makers, 
you know, and it was like a love fest. So that was like when I, you know, I kind of really got my feet wet with the doll making and, and the black dolls. And, you know, when I came back here, people started asking me to do workshops and talk about black dolls and the history of black dolls. Yes. That blew my mind because it's something, it's a quote that Laverne said, a doll reflects the history of a people as well as any book or photograph. And I found that to be true. When I started doing my research, the first black dolls were made as servants to white dolls. Wow. You know what I'm saying? Like, yes, I do. And it wasn't until after the ending of slavery that black doll companies, the Negro doll company was founded. And then, then there was this push to create dolls that uplifted and, you know, reflected us more positively. And then, you know, you could just follow the history. History. Our history in this country, you can follow it with dolls as well. When the civil rights movement happened. Yes. So many people were demanding of the toy companies, dolls and people that reflected us very positively. The smaller black doll companies, Olmec and a whole lot of those companies in the 70s and the 80s came out. Mattel started, oh my God. You mean you want a black Barbie? Right. I think we can do that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so. Exactly. So all of that. So that's how I came full circle to this. I love it. I love it, Kianga. And one thing I want to pause and go back to the magic, because you were saying that your daughter's a kindergartner. She's looking at you, her mother, who is regal in your own words. You got the regalia on. (laughs) You've got the gorgeous fabrics and you've got your hair and these wonderful locks down to your hip. You've got like all of these things. And she is looking at you as her mother and as her mentor and as her model and as her mirror. Yes. As her mirror. And you were like, there's no way you could go to the store and buy a black doll. Right. Right. So instead you were like, you know what? I am going to make this for you. And I just wanted to see if you can remember the process and what about it felt so magical when you were cutting out the fabric, when you were stitching the seams of that first doll, when you were stuffing that doll with the different fiber fill or whatever you're using to kind of help it to form shape. What was that process of creation? What was it about it that felt magical to you? I felt that one, I was doing something for the love of it. This was something that my daughter had asked me for. And this was something that I felt that I could create for her. And it was like, as I was stuffing it, as I was picking the fabric for the clothing, I was like, oh, I can put on a, she can have on, you know, a grand booba, you know, yes, make a little lopper. Oh, she can have a head wrap. Oh my goodness. I can make earrings. Oh, and I can string beads for her necklace. And it was like, you know, all of that now. As a child, I was into collage. I like putting things together, pictures and stuff. And to yes. me, the doll was a form of a collage on a, a 3D level. Yeah. You know, once I did the face and the hair and the stuff, I was like, this is a person inside of me. You know, it's like, that's what I connected it to, you know? And every time I make a doll, I look like, oh, so who is this? You know, oh, that's inside. Okay. Oh. It was like a birthing process. Yeah. I say to this day, my daughter gave me my life's work, you know? 
because I think a few years after that, that's when I kind of dabbled into quilting. Yeah. And I was introduced to Faith Ringel's work, which was a lot like what I was doing. Yes. Yes. And the ability to see in her work a connection. And that's something yes. I appreciate about Black women artists, Black women writers, and Black women in general. You know, even as we have incredibly distinct experiences, we are not all the same. We are not a monolith. No. None no, of that we... is true. None of that is necessary. And there are ways that we can find and recognize ourselves in one another. Absolutely. For different aspects. And I think that that is very important. Absolutely. Really important. And your work beautifully illustrates that. And how generous to say that your daughter gave you your life's work. It's a beautiful and powerful process of reciprocal giving, right? Yes. You gave her a doll. And in the opportunity that she gave you to make a doll, you made something of a larger artistic practice that became a lifelong process, a continuation, a new direction and a lifelong process. So that's really very beautiful. Very beautiful. Thank you. Now, I want to talk about some of the, your sewing travels. You have had the opportunity to travel places, to do sewing, to learn from. So you've traveled to G's Bend to work with the Pet family who have those fantastic quilts. You travel with Lisa Shepard Stewart, who's been on the podcast a couple times. Yes. She did her sojourns to Ghana. Yes. That's when I met Lisa, actually. Is that right? So tell us about the Ghana trip. Okay. Okay, a friend told me about it on Facebook that there was going to be an exhibit of quilts in Ghana and you could submit your quilts to be in the show. And when I did the research, it was not only that you could submit your quilts, but you could travel with your quilts to Ghana for the show that was going to be there for the two weeks that we were going to be there. And I was like, I was excited. You know, I've only been to Africa twice. I'm planning to go again in the spring, but both times it was my dolls that took me there. Oh, that's my artwork that took me there. The first time I went to Africa was in 2000 with Laverne Hall. And this is a story that I I was told that during apartheid, black dolls were banned. Wow. And after apartheid, what we did was we collected doll, black dolls from all over the United States. And I did two doll making workshops prior to that trip. I invited people to make dolls because we were going to distribute them to the children of South Africa. Right. So people made dolls. I got the pre-stuffed dolls and I dyed them all shades of brown. Right. No. And gave them like some general instruction and people wrote letters and put them inside each doll. And so we took those dolls over to South Africa and distributed those dolls amongst the children there, which was, oh, that was just life changing. So that was the first time that my dolls took me to Africa. Now, can I ask you what the children's responses were when y'all passed out the dolls? Did you go to different townships or did you go to like a community center? And what was the reaction from children who had never seen a doll or who may not have seen a doll before that looked like them? Well, we went to Soweto. Okay. I have one particular memory of our trip to Soweto. There was a a women's collective where the women were learning printmaking, papermaking, and skills that they could use so that they can employ themselves. And in the other room where their children were in a daycare situation. And I distinctly remember handing a little girl, and I probably 
I'll dig up the picture because I know I still have it. I handed her the doll. She lifted up her little top and put the doll on her breast. That just like, oh, that's just really like, you know. She's like, this is my baby. This is yeah. my baby. And it goes back to what you were saying about the connection between me and my daughter. This child connected. When she saw this little baby doll, that's what her mommy did. That's right. She lifted up her little shirt and put that doll. I said, oh my goodness. Wow. You know, so we did that. We went to an orphanage and we distributed dolls. And we also did a workshop. Laverne led a workshop because her thing was sock dolls. She could take a sock girl and make the most fabulous doll. Wow. Fabulous doll. Wow. We did a workshop at a church where they learned how to make sock dolls. So we were all over. Like I said, we were in Soweto. We were in Johannesburg. We went to an orphanage. We went out to the countryside. You know, everywhere we went, we had dolls. It was, um, I think it was like 20 of us that went. And we had more than 2,000 dolls, more than that. Because I was collecting dolls. I also produced Celebrating Black Doll Art, a Black doll show and sale here in South Florida prior to going to South Africa. Oh, okay. I collected dolls. Everybody was collecting dolls. You know, at the doll show, a part of your admission was you had to bring a doll that I could take with me. And I took empty suitcases. My suitcases were full of dolls. Wow. Oh, my gosh. That was such an amazing experience. And then with Lisa, you know, it was the quilting. Yes. And to have a show open, we were at the Day Center for Contemporary Art, African okay. Art and Culture. Yes. Just to have our work within the walls of this phenomenal gallery space that had all of these contemporary African artists. Girl, they had one room. And I have a little video. I'm going to have to find it. With me and Lisa, we just went crazy. Uh-huh. Back to the ceiling. Vintage. Kente cloth. Oh my Vintage Cuba cloth. Wow. Vintage mud cloth. Wow. Like every room was something different. But yeah, that's how I met Lisa. When I found out about the trip, she was organizing it. And you know, Lisa's energy is so light and beautiful and fun. You know, you can judge people on social media if you see enough of them. Yes. And I watched how she was moving and, you know, how she was posting. I said, I'm going with her. I'm going to go with her. Oh, and I think it was 28 of us that wind up going. Okay. Wow. That was another life-changing trip. Traveling to, oh my God, Kumasi to shop for fabric in the marketplace. Was it incredible? I wish I could do that every day. <laughs> Seriously, wow. Visualizing, transporting myself to Kumasi's market where, you know, the sisters have these little teeny stalls, man. And it's just African fabric stacked to the ceiling all around them. And that's as far as the eye can see in every direction. These little narrow pathways in this fabric fabric. We we lost our minds. Wow. We lost our minds. It's like you had to travel with an empty suitcase there as well. So you can bring some Absolutely. Oh. When I came back, you know, we were going through customs. And the custom guy was going through my suitcase. He opened it up because I had one of those, those contractable suitcase. Yes. Girl, that thing was as high up as I was. And he opened it and he's like, fabric, fabric. All you have is fabric. I said, yes, that's what I'm <laughs> Yes, it is. That we, is we left clothes. 
clothes. I gave away clothes to make room for more fabric. You it's know, like, I, don't need, I can get more jeans when I get back home. You know what I'm saying? But I have always had a love since I was a teenager for African textiles. Like, I've been black all my life. You know what Thanks, I'm saying? Yeah. Yes, I, I have do. always loved my culture and my heritage. And I've always had this connection. And, you know, someone asked me one time, he said, well, did your parents teach you a lot about African culture? Not really, but I grew up in Baltimore. I went to an all-Black elementary school, an all-Black middle school, an all-Black high school, and I went to a historically Black college. And from eight years old, when I got my first library card, I would get stacks of books. My books were all about us. I read everybody's autobiography. I read all the stories, all the Langston Hughes, all the Zora Neale Hurst. You know, I fed myself on our culture. Yeah. You know, and then I was surrounded by it you know, growing up. And so that was it. I'm reading right now, read until you understand the profound wisdom of black life. And what? And she's taking me back through a lot of those books that I read as a child and just reminding me of the power of our wisdom and the life that we live. And I'm hopefully going to take that into the work that I'm creating for the fellowship, you know, just honoring the profound wisdom of Black life. And I'm so glad you mentioned that because that was going to be my next questions. But before we turn to that, I wanted to just say what I'm hearing from you is that you had from the very beginning a deep curiosity, it sounds to me, a deep curiosity about your culture, that you were not just living Blackness. You were not just going about your everyday Black life. You were, of course, doing that. But you were also really curious about the Black lives before you. Yes. About ancestry and legacy and the legacy of our art, our intellectual and literary legacies. And so that kind of curiosity, which is not something that they really, at least in my experience, cultivate in school. No, they don't. And so, especially now, not in Florida, but... It's really, really powerful to hear you talk about how you fed your own spirit, how you fed your own critical imagination, how you fed your own need for cultural representation and a cultural reflection. And it seems as though what you're describing is your very deep and loving Black formative years, as well as your college years, All of that was seems to be preparing you to do the work you're doing now. Hey, friends. Hey, what are you doing on Thursday around 3 p.m. or so? You got 30 minutes to hang out with Black Women Stitch? You got 60? If so, come through for 30-minute Thursdays. Thursdays, 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. You can chill with Black Women Stitch on Instagram Live or talk with us through the two-way audio on Clubhouse at 3.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. That's Thursdays for 30 minutes. Come hang out, chill, and have fun with us. See you Thursday. I believe so. And my father, they didn't spend a lot of time talking to us about our heritage. They still made sure, like my mother made sure I got to see Angela Davis when she came to town when I was 13 years old. And I walked in the room and that was the biggest Afro I had ever seen in my life. 
till that point. And I think at that point is when I said, I am not straightening my hair anymore. I was like 13. My mother said, what? Not even when you go back to school? You know, over the summer, I could have Afro all summer. But when it got time for school, I was supposed to go get it straight. And I was like 13. I told my mom, I am not. Absolutely not. But look, I don't have to look at Angela Davis. She's incredible. Exactly. Amazing. She cares for the people. She's wonderful. She's free. And so is her hair. I want free hair too. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I also not only made it my life's work to learn about who I am, because I feel like when you know who you are and you know the history, can't nobody just come and say stupid shit to you about They cannot. They cannot tolerate it. They can't even come to me with that stuff. But I also made sure that my children knew that, yes. you know, like books that I would read, books that I remembered from childhood or books as they were growing up, like my sons, they read all of Walter Dean Myers because this brother was writing about young black men and the experiences yeah. of being a young black man. Yeah. So they all had to read that, you know, of Water and Spirit. When I read it, that was assigned to all of my children so we could discuss it, you know, right. during the summertime. They had book reports. You know, you had to read the autobiography of Malcolm X. You're reading the autobiography of Malcolm X. You're reading I Know Why the Cage Birds Sing. <laughs> You're reading A Choice of Weapons by Gordon Parks. And then we discussed it. And it's like, I fed them with that because I knew that they weren't going to get that anywhere else in the world. You know, when they stepped out of my house, they were going to get something that wasn't them. That's right. And I wanted them to be armed with that. When I hear people yes. say, well, they don't teach it in schools. Well, so that's yeah. your responsibility. I think yeah. it's our responsibility. Yeah. It's my responsibility to learn about myself. They should. Yeah. They should. But they've yeah. never done that. That We have you never been a priority that? in any they've public. They've never taught anything. us about ourselves. No. It's true. They candy-coated it. You know, like we're just hearing about the fact that when Martin Luther King was alive, he was considered public enemy number, number one. one. You know what I'm yeah. saying? So like, we can't like sugarcoat all of that. No. You know, we need to teach our children the truth and we need to learn ourselves. When you see people who are connecting you to your truth, like a lot of what you do, Lisa, with your show, you're reconnecting me and connecting me to other people. Like, wow, I need to check that sister out. I didn't know she was doing that. I didn't know that was going on. I've always been a teacher and I've always been a student. Yeah. And so it's just who I am. Yeah, you know, it's just who I am. That got all worked up. <laughs> because it's exciting, right? It's exciting. Yeah. And it's just like, not everybody gets to, I know this, this phrase seems kind of trite and I don't mean it to be, but live in their purpose. Yeah. Sometimes I think because Black life can be so embattled. Yeah. We are confronted by things that just challenge our regular basic humanity quite frequently that it's easy to slip into this mode of resistance all the time of this. And what I have been celebrating is thinking about just Black being and Black aliveness and Black coaching and Black joy and just making deliberate shifts in perspective, right? And that's what I'm seeing in your work, your deep curiosity about yourself, about your culture and legacy curating experiences for your children so that they too can develop and be fortified. And one word I came up with when you were talking about your kids being kind of armed with this knowledge is that it's equipping, that you are equipping them with truths about themselves and their history and heritage, because you are absolutely right. 
when you know who you are and where you are from and whose you are, it makes yes. it a lot harder for people to lie to you and yes. you and you believe. That's it right there. It makes it so much harder. And you have an arsenal to come back to the shiggity. Yes. You know? Yes. That's not true. No, I know that's not, not true. You that's know, true. and I know and this is why I know it's not. Exactly. I look at my kids now because they're all grown. I have three sons and a daughter and they're all fire. They're all fire. That doesn't surprise me. Not at all. Not knowing your children at all, but knowing you, <laughs> it surprises me not at all that your children are actual fire. Yeah. And you know, throughout the years, I've also tried to balance that with understanding how we need to connect back to our inner peace. And I think that's what took me on the path to becoming a yoga teacher. Because when I was exposed to yoga and the calming, the inner focus, the cleansing and the clearing of your breath and and the stillness, I'm like, don't nobody need this more than us. You know? And I was introduced to it at 15. There's a sister who was teaching yoga. She invited us to come into her home every Thursday evening, me and two of my friends. And that, that seed stayed with me until I was an adult. And I bought that. And, you know, even becoming a massage therapist, which Mm -hmm. I've done for the last 22 years, I just stopped to be a full-time artist. But that was also something that I felt that I could bring to our community because it's not a luxury to relax your muscles, relax your body and let let some healing take place. Some drug-free healing, you know, from healing touch, you know? yes. And so my life work has always been about us in different levels. You know, the art is is another thing too, bringing it to the community and helping people to connect to that as an option. Yes. For healing and growing because we too often alcohol and drugs, especially I grew up in the sixties and seventies. I remember when heroin had a hold on our community. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I remember that. And so Growing up, I was like, I wanted to change that. I wanted to do something to help our community. Like, you know, I'm a self-taught artist. I know we're talking about my whole art thing, but I have a bachelor's degree in community mental health. Hey, that is a natural extension, but you keep going. I'm going to tell you why, but you keep going. (laughs) So you said you have a, a background in community health. Yeah, my bachelor's degree from Morgan State. Yes. Is in community mental health. You know what? When I hear you say that, I am not at all surprised. Mm. And here is why. Because to me, wholeness and health go hand in hand. Yes. And based on listening to your story about your work, not just your work as an artist, but your work as someone who is so deeply and innately curious about our culture, our people, our history, our community, and that you share that through your craft, through doll making, and now through quilting. That seems to me part of this whole larger story about liberation, right? And that liberation, this is a quote from Alexis Pauline Gums that I love. And she says, freedom isn't a secret. Yes. It is a practice. Absolutely. And what you seem to be doing from since you were a small child is practicing that freedom. Yeah, I've tried to, you know, just as you were talking just then, it made me think back to when I first started 
doll making and I started doing the lectures, I was also doing workshops of doll making in the school system. I kept getting invited to come in. And then I started working with a lot of the social service agencies. Right. And I mean, I remember doing a workshop for adjudicated youth who had committed crimes against the elderly. And part of their community service was to make a doll for an elder. Wow. You know, along with a letter of apology and some other things. Yes. And I mean, it was mostly, you know, young men, full gold teeth and, you know, baggy and the whole thing. Yeah. And I remember my daughter, because she's also been on this doll journey with me. Okay. Like all the traveling that I did, Wonderful. she came with me. She made her little button. She had these buttons, another doll at work that you could buy from her. Oh. And like she was seven, eight, nine, ten. I had a little pallet under my table. So when she got tired, she could go to sleep under the table while I was vending at a doll show. Wow. But, you know, we were at this workshop and these brothers came in because usually I'm like, I don't know if this, this is good dolls. It's good for this group or that. You know, she said, oh, right. mommy, everybody loves dolls. And that <laughs> is what I, that same magic, Lisa, that I was telling you that I felt, I see it in people when they're creating a doll. Wow. I can't even tell you. So these young men, they made dolls that had baggy jeans, that had gold teeth and stuff. And then they said, can we make another doll? Can we keep these and make another doll for the elders? So I wound up getting a second workshop. You know what I'm saying? Like, I could tell you so many stories over the years of I've taught doll making to severely emotionally challenged young people to elders to teenagers to moms I got a grant from the cultural council like years ago I went to 10 different head start sites in Palm Beach County Mm -hmm. and each head start site I taught the parents at that head start site how to make dolls wow they made the dolls and the dolls got to stay at the Head Start site where their children went oh. there. And so when the children got to play with dolls, they were playing with the dolls that their parents had made oh. for them. Oh my you know? God, my heart. So, you know what I'm saying? So I have had a lot of fun with this, but it's been very important for me yes. to help people connect to their own creativity. That's right. Because you, know, you hear people say, I'm not an artist. Yes, you are. There's something yeah. that you connect to that brings that light out of you that you will do, you know, no matter what, whether you get paid for it or not, you'll just do it, do it, do it, do it. You know, but just to tap them into their own creativity and to see the smile on people's faces and that sense of pride when they've completed something, you know, so. I think it's incredible. I absolutely think it is incredible. And I want to ask you about your Artist Innovation Fellowship for 2022 and how exciting that is. That's another award. What is your project that you will be doing under the auspices of that fellowship? Okay, so I am an Artist Innovation Fellow from the Palm Beach County Cultural Council. And it's a fellowship that allows you to develop yourself as an artist. I'm going to be doing a couple of things with that. One of the things that I wanted to do is mentor with other artists whose work that I respect and honor. And two of those artists that I will be mentoring with 
is Gwendolyn Akee Brooks. She's a collage painter, quilter, doll maker, internationally world-renowned artist. And she actually lives just north of Tampa. Okay, so I'll be spending time with her in her studio. Her husband is also an artist. He's a collage artist. Like these artists that I have connected through and with over the years whose work that I admire and respect. And I was like, man, I wish I could just go be in their studio and hang out with them. Yeah. That's one of the things I'm going to do. So she is one. The other artist is Lauren Austin. And Lauren is a quilt and fiber artist. Her work was just featured in Quilt Folk when they did the uh, Florida issue. Okay. Amazing artist. I'm connected with her years ago. So I'm going to be going up to New Smyrna at the art center there. And she's into dyeing cloth. And she does some fabulous printing on fabric that I want to learn to do. So after all of that, I'm creating a series of quilts that I'm calling the Divine Feminine and African Spirituality, Black Culture and Life. So right now it looks like it's going to be about seven quilts. Okay. And I'm going to address the Divine Feminine and African Spirituality. And through that, I want to create several quilts that honor the Arisha Oya, yes, yes. Oshun, and Yewonja. Oh, of course, do something on Harriet Tubman, because to me, she is the divine feminine. Yes. yes. And, you know, not your typical Harriet. You know, she's going to be fly with full regalia. She's going to have her shot done. Okay? There we go. Yeah, and I want to honor my dear great Aunt Mary, who was a domestic and had her madam and her whole life was taking care of other people. To yeah. me, that is divine. There's there's divinity in that. I'm exploring the divinity in, in our lives, our daily lives and in our spirituality. I want to do something on the Black Madonna. Yeah. When I got this opportunity, I began to think about the quilts that I've always wanted to make. Mm-hmm. And as I started thinking about it, I realized that I could kind of put them in this category of the divine feminine and African spirituality, yes. Black life and culture, you know, so that's that. The Black woman is God. Yes. yes. The Black woman is God. I've yes. been following the readings of Christina Cleveland, who just wrote a book about that, but she did another book that I got and read. And it's like, you know, I'm going to explore how the Black woman is shared, shown as being God. Like when I think about the series of futuristic movies, Neo, what is the name of that? that Matrix. Thank you. Yes, The Matrix. Uh 63. You know, (laughs) I really am 63. Fantastic. You're inspiring me to drink water and mind my business. So in a couple, two, three years, when I get up to your years, I'll have skin like yours, but I, I don't drink enough water. So yeah, yeah, but you know, that's also living down here in Florida because it's hot. You need to drink, you, you know, you have to hydrate. Yeah, you do. You really hydration do. and exfoliation secret. But, you know, I thought about those movies and I remember distinctly when they showed you who God was and she was a, a middle-aged black woman. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, I want to, I want to express that in my art. I love Um, one more piece that I had like on the shelf. I've actually had started on it. A woman is not a potted plant. And that is from a poem by Alice Walker that I read in the nineties. And I actually did a piece kind of a little bit, but this time I really want to explore that 
idea of a woman is not a potted plant, something you can sit on the shelf while you go off and do your life and then you come back and she's going to just be there waiting for you. No. Wow. So anyway, that's what I'm planning to do. Oh man, that is that's nice. What I'm to do. That is, and, oh and, my gosh, this is exciting. Yeah. Yeah, and we have like the whole year, we have from January 1st, 2022 to January 1st, 2023. Okay. And the showcase of our work is not until June 2023. So I oh, have wow. like a year. Yes. So you're going to be working this yeah. year. Yeah. Working yeah. all of 2022, working to get ready for the show next year. Yes. Oh. The next couple of months, I'm just going to be doing research. I'm reading. I got a real nice reading list. And, you know, just taking taking notes and pulling ideas for each of these pieces. Can I give you two book ideas for your Yes. List? So two, they're by the same author. He is okay. a scholar who specializes in like Black feminist theory and poetics. And okay. his name is Kevin Quashie, Q-U-A-S-H-I-E. And he's got two books that I think would be perfect for you. Okay. One I just finished teaching recently, and it's called Black Aliveness. Oh. Uh-huh. It's called Black Aliveness, and it's like something like Torta Poetics of Black something something, but it's about okay. Black aliveness, and it goes past resistance. It goes past resilience. It's just about confirming and sedimenting and reveling in Black aliveness. The other right. book he has that I think you will really like, and I haven't spent much time with it yet. It's called uh-huh. The Sovereignty of Quiet. Oh, wow. Right? You know what he does? He starts the book with that famous moment with John Carlos and who's the other Black man at the, is it the 63 Olympics where they raise their fist? Oh, yes, 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 yes. The race I have that picture right over yes, here. Yes, exactly. Right? And so that became this huge icon, right? For like Black militancy, et cetera, et cetera. But what he does is he notices that the two Black men have their heads bowed as yeah. in prayer. Yes. And he's talking about how it might have looked loud to everyone else, but that's actually a gesture of quiet, of yes. silence, right? Yes. They weren't shouting, they weren't screaming. They were quiet. They were introspective. Yeah. They yes. were deliberate. And there was something yeah. about quiet and reading that through quiet. It's just so beautiful. So I think- Thank you. I have them down. I'm going to check them out. Yeah, I love those books and I'm going to be revisiting them myself. So they were kind of like top of mind. And then I just wanted to kind of, as we start to wrap up, I was thinking, of course, about Audre Lorde saying- Yes. Oh yeah, I have, yeah. I have her Poetry is not a luxury. Yes. And when you said mental health, our wholeness, a massage, meditation, that's not luxury either. Right. No, and if we no. put these things as, oh, no, no, I can't have poetry in my life. I can't have art in my life. I can't have rest in my life. I can't take a break. Not, we have to write our own story. No, uh, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Otherwise, if we let the world write it, write it for us, we're doomed. Yeah. You know? like, we'll be suffering. You know, you brought up the point about rest. You know, I've been following the Sister to Nat ministry. And one yes. thing, when I first started reading that really kind of resonated with me. And that was that our ancestors were not allowed to rest. That's right. They work from can't see in the morning till can't see at night. 
And even after enslavement was over, laws were created. So they couldn't just stand around and chill. No, the vagrancy laws that created the second incarnation of slavery through what they call convict leasing. They would find Black people who were idle, quote unquote idle, and capture them and sell them to farms where white people would buy their, it's just horrible. And even like, I was looking at some 1920s, 1930s, no, no, no. This was the 40s, actually. Some 1940s advertisements complaining about Negro women not wanting to work in white women's houses and that these Negro women wanted to stay home and tend to their own families. And it was the social order because these Negro women were idle. Because, of course, we're idle when we don't want to work for white women, right? Absolutely. And so it's this idea, I think, of the Nat ministry and her, her claim as rest as resistance, rest, no, not resistance, rest as reparations. That yes. is reparations. I think that that yes. is, it's a powerful reminder that we yes. come from a history where our labor was mandatory, yep. not compensated yep. or valued or recognized or appreciated. And so- We weren't considered lazy until the end of enslavement. That's right. That's right. Exactly. And so it's just such a powerful construct and you are undoing it. And that's something that I find really powerful and beautiful. Before we wrap up, which I can't believe the time has flown so fast. Oh my gosh, no. I know, right? (laughs) We'll have to have another conversation. So much fun. This is not our only time to chat. Okay. But one thing I wanted to ask, and I've been asking folks this this year, the slogan for the Stitch Please podcast is we will help you get your stitch together. Yes. What advice would you offer someone who wanted to get their stitch together? What would you say to help them get their stitch together? I would say connect to other people who are also in that same flow that you are and that they will help you get your stitch together as they are getting their stitch together. You know, because I am because we are Ubuntu. And it's the same with getting your stitch together. Get together with the other sisters and brethren who will help you to get your stitch together. I love it. And on that note, we are so grateful to Kianga Janyaki. Thank you for being with us today. This was fantastic. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm honored and I'm just tickled. Oh, I had so much fun. <laughs> You've been listening to the Stitch Please podcast the official podcast of Black Women Stitch, the sewing group where Black Lives Matter. We appreciate you supporting us by listening to the podcast. If you'd like to reach out to us with questions, you can contact us at blackwomenstitch at gmail.com. If you'd like to support us financially, you can do that by supporting us on Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, and you can find Black Women Stitch there in the Patreon directory. And for as little as $2 a month, you can help support the project with things like editing, transcripts, and other things to strengthen the podcast. And finally, if financial support is not something you can do right now, you can really, really help the podcast by rating it and reviewing it anywhere you listen to podcasts that allows you to review them. So I know that not all podcast directories or services allow for reviews, But for those who do, for those that have like a star rating or just ask for a few comments, if you could share those comments and say nice things about us at the Stitch Please podcast, that is incredibly helpful. Thank you so much. Come back next week and we'll help you get your stitch together. Stitch Please.